Under tremendous public pressure and the crushing financial burden of an ever-mounting series of lawsuits, the government quietly initiated the Superhero Relocation Program. The Supers would be granted amnesty from responsibility for past actions in exchange for the promise to never again resume hero work. Where are they now? They are living among us. Average citizens, average heroes, quietly and anonymously continuing to make the world a better place. Welcome to Now Playing's The Incredibles Retrospective Series. Suit up, it might get weird. Hosted by Stuart. I'm the greatest good you are ever gonna get. Arnie. You know, I was right to idolize you. And Jacob. It's a whole family of supers. Looks like I've hit the jackpot. Oh, this is just too good. This podcast will be spoiler-filled and may contain mild language. Come on. We're superheroes. What could happen? Listener discretion is advised. Showtime. Today we're discussing The Incredibles 2. Starring Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunter, Sarah Vowell, Huck Milner, and Samuel L. Jackson. Directed by Brad Bird. This is Arnie. Your co-host of Now Playing, who is Incredible 2. And this is Stuart. And this is Jacob, the host who is most qualified despite what the pie chart says. <laughs> I was probably the host least qualified to go to an Incredibles marathon. I was certain I'm the person who'd seen the Incredibles the least, but I went to the marathon. I wanted to revisit Incredibles 1 before Incredibles 2. They did a double feature in IMAX an extra day early. It was on Wednesday, whereas most preview screenings were on Thursday. So I plucked down the $22 to go have four hours of incredible fun. Yeah, I did the same thing, and it was a little bit of a struggle. I actually really identified with Mr. Incredible as he's trying to stay awake reading that bedtime story to Jack-Jack, because that's a <laughs> lot of time after your jet lag. I just came back from Europe. You heard me do a really big yawn at one point, and I, I had to lean over and be like, it's not the movie, it's just me. But yeah, four hours of Incredibles. It had been a while since I had seen the first one. It has been a while since the first one. I got to ask, during your marathon, I did not go to that. I went to just a regular show, but it's a family movie. I had to take the whole family, so there's a hundred plus dollars I just spent for this film. But did yours start with a commercial apologizing for the 14 years it's taken? Yes, it did, and not really apologizing so much as explaining, and... It felt like it was like, sorry, guys, sorry it took so long, but the movie's gonna be great. That's why we took so long to do it. Yeah, it was worth the 14 years, because 14 years is a record for them. It took four years for Toy Story 2, it took five years for Cars 2, it took 12 years for Monsters University, and it took 13 years for Finding Dory. 14 years is the longest stretch, unless they do A Bug's Life 2. <laughs> But this had been rumored forever, it had been swirling around in rumors and conversation, and three years ago, when we reviewed the first Incredibles, we thought it would never happen. That's why we reviewed the first Incredibles. <laughs> yeah, we also reviewed the first Incredibles because we were trying to promote a Kickstarter campaign, and so I can't get on my high horse about how it's taken them 14 years to make a sequel, when here we are, four years later. Three. Yeah, three and a half-ish. Uh, three years and two months. <laughs> okay, it, it feels forever. It weighs heavy on my head. The book is close to being done. We've recorded a lot of the audio. I believe we are finalizing the last 
print of the book and they're trying to find a way to get it into your hands if you've ordered a physical copy. And if you haven't, pre-orders are still open. Once we get this book printed, there's no more autographed copies. Jacob is flying to Illinois and going to sit and sign with us for the number of Kickstarter physical copies we have and the number of pre-orders we have. After that, you're just going to get the book. So if you want the book in its physical form, signed by all four of us authors, Marjorie, Jacob, Stewart, and me, you've got a pre-order at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. If you get the bundle, you will get the ebook virtually immediately within a day or two the ebook is out there it's version three of the ebook thank you to all the eagle-eyed readers who went in and found a couple of typos and a couple of errors in there Mm. that's part of the reason we don't have the physical book yet is because we want to make sure there are no errors when we send it to print then you'll get the audiobook i would guess within the next four to six weeks and then the physical book As soon as the audiobook's done, we're sending it to the printer, and then we'll have a date from them. But yeah, it's only been two years late versus 14 years for them. We knew we wouldn't have the book until at least January of 16. It's June of 18. But yeah, I think Brad Bird has a a bit more to apologize for than us. I mean, we had everything go wrong. The artist broke his arm in a motorcycle crash. The lawyer said we had to change a bunch of stuff. And there's the update on the book. Why did it take 14 years? Because I remember after seeing that first one, I'm like, best Fantastic Four movie ever. Let's get this franchise going. Let's get more of these. I was excited. Certainly not because Pixar didn't want it. Pixar has shown its hand. If you look, the first 10 movies they made, there was only one sequel. The next 10 that they've made, there have been six more sequels. They are very sequel-minded. We're not counting all those cars and planes spinoffs, are we? Not even counting planes and all of that. It's Disney, right? I mean, Disney loves a sequel, loves a franchise. They hate risk. That's why they're making all their animated hits into live action. When do we get our live action The Incredibles, actually? Whenever the next Fantastic Four film comes out. Yeah, that'll be the next phase. Remaking the Pixar movies as live-action movies. I could see it happening. Yeah, I gotta believe that the parent company has some influence there. I also think that they had built a large stable of popular worlds and characters, and some people just didn't want to let them go. I feel like the Toy Story sequels have remained strong, as strong as the original, so I'm not totally opposed to it, but I think Pixar wanted creator Brad Bird to be involved. And the reason why it's probably taken so long is he had other things on his burners. There were things that he wanted to do, like Mission Impossible 4. We reviewed that film. And And Tomorrowland. Yeah, Uh, which I reviewed that film when we talked about Pirates of the Caribbean, movies based on theme park rides. That was an unfortunate one, certainly. And Disney property and movie for Disney, one that just looked so toxic from the trailers, you couldn't pay me to watch it. It's not that bad, but there's nothing there for me to say, hey, it's a gem. But basically, it took that failure for him to realize, hey, I need to go back to something that worked for me. And someone else is already doing the Mission Impossible movie sequels, so that left Incredibles. He could have done Ratatouille 2 as well. He had made that for Pixar as well. But Incredibles... More than any of the other ones. It's strange to me it's taken so long because it has such a built-in story engine. With superheroes, it would seem very easy to craft new adventures. 
Yeah, I don't need another Ratatouille where, I don't know, he goes and helps McDonald's out or something. But yeah, The Incredibles, it's superheroes. You have adventures. That's what comic books are built on. Decades of just telling stories. And so it felt like this was built in. And that's why it's a surprise. It took so long for this to come back. I was actually surprised we finally got a sequel to it. And I guess that was part of the holdup. Brad Bird, in doing press for this movie, said, I had trouble coming up with a story because there have been so many superhero movies. And I get that. Having gone to that marathon and watched that original movie, a movie I professed to love on the first podcast, I still liked it. But boy, it did feel less fresh. I could identify with Arnie's jaded sense of been there, done that, having literally seen over a hundred superhero movies between that one and now. I get it. Yeah, it's a good film, but it is hard to do something new in the superhero genre these days. Here were my thoughts watching this because they make a big deal. Hey, the world is finally ready for superheroes to return. I'm like, guys, Marvel beat you. They're celebrating their 10th anniversary for the cinematic universe. You've taken too long with this 14 years. I went back and looked like, what were comic book movies in 2004? Mm-hmm. We had Catwoman. Spider-Man 2. <laughs> Spider-Man 2, which is a high point. Hellboy, which was good. Thomas Jane Punisher, that was not well received. Those were the major ones. A very different landscape. We'd have to wait another year until 2005 to get Nolan to reinvigorate the Batman franchise. So you've got 14 years of commentary you've got to fit in. It's weird that it's going to be like, hey, we're ready for superheroes again. Mm. We've done that for the last 10 years with Marvel. I also read some interviews with Brad Bird and with the cast, and part of the holdup wasn't just superheroes have been done, but they tried to figure out how to make the balance. He said during the first film, Pixar was like, what is this film? Is it a domestic comedy? Is it a superhero movie? Is it a drama? Is it a midlife crisis? What is it? And Brad Bird would just say, yes, coming back. He was concerned about how to get that mix right again, how to do the family drama against the superhero, because whatever it is you liked about the first one, he wanted to make sure it was represented in the second one. And so I think he may have had perhaps a little bit of stage fright. It might be considered his biggest success. Looking at his resume, I'd consider it his biggest success. And we all know how a bad sequel contains a good original. And right now, if this was bad... He'd be at 50-50 with it, whereas at least Superman had two good ones before Superman 3. And the longer you wait for something, the higher the expectations are. I mean, if he had gotten a movie out within three years, well, it didn't have to be great, right? We just wanted more. But 14 years is quite a buildup. People who saw this as an adolescent are now almost 30 and may have kids of their own that they're going to take this to. Part of the reason I went to the marathon, very few kids. (laughs) Kids don't pay for those marathons. Parents don't pay for the marathons. Hey, I'm telling you, I pay for regular tickets plus popcorn. Again, over $100. I could not do a marathon with the family. Yeah, that is very expensive. I know you didn't do it for the poster, Arnie. It was like it was carpeted (laughs) with these posters they were getting. I was sliding trying to get to my seat because they gave us these giant posters and no one knew where to put them. I did not take one. I'm a whore for free stuff. Wow, you love free stuff. I do, but I realized what would happen to it, and Stuart's poster was proof. I'm like, (laughs) I don't want to take it to my car. I don't know what I'll do with it at home, so... I just didn't know what to do with it, so I said I'll pass. Stuart took it, and I'm like, you took the poster? 
He put it on the floor. People trampled it, walked over yeah. it. I actually at one point made a joke. I'm like, oh, she stepped on your poster. <laughs> and it looked so trash. He put it in the garbage on the way out. I'm like, why'd you bother? Yeah. That was nice of you to throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> Always clean up after your concessions. I've worked in a theater. I, I, It's ingrained in my head. But yes, it was trash at that point. It was as worthless as the soda can that had the Incredibles logo on it. There was no value to it. I actually thought you were taking it home when you picked it up. I didn't realize you were one of those who tries to put theater cleanup people out of their job. And I do. No, they prefer that. My girls, they're very considerate, and they always clean up their trash and throw it in the garbage bin. I do, too. But when I saw him picking up the poster, I thought he was taking it home. <laughs> there was only one place for that poster. But yeah, it was... A crowd of really enthusiastic fans. I thought I saw a cosplayer or two, but it turned out they were just wearing Incredibles t-shirts that happened to be red, just like the outfits, and have the eye on the front, just like the outfits. I really did feel out of my depth. People were cheering for the Disney logo. I mean, people cheered for that apology slash explanation why it took 14 years. I'm like, that's weird. We're already at the film. We don't need a commercial to convince us to see this. But people were super excited. To take a page from the film, can we talk about the elephant in the room? <laughs> Namely, that Arnie claims he recommended the original, but it sure didn't sound like it when I re-listened to that podcast. That had to be some of your thoughts going into this as well. You're revisiting a movie that's popular with others, but you yourself, lukewarm is maybe high praise. Yeah, I re-listened to some of that show myself because the film is certainly recommendable. The film is not anything I hold dear or consider a modern-day classic. I consider it the best Fantastic Four film ever made. Still, I can't say I love it. Having now watched it three times, I keep seeing the same problems with it. I really do think it's too long, too. I mean, a full two hours, a full four-hour marathon was not what I was expecting for two animated films. But it's good. It's Good enough. I stand by or recommend. I just don't love the film. And because so many people love the film, that sounds like a red arrow to them when, in fact, it's not a red arrow at all. It's not even borderline. Well, should we get into the film or do we need to talk about Bao? If you want to talk about red arrows, that's all I really got for this. I'm very concerned about this family. They are using a lot of food to self-medicate. <laughs> that's my takeaway from Bao. Okay, so you guys didn't like it either. No. I thought I was going to be called out here because I'm watching that. And you guys know, we reviewed another theatrical animated film, Big Hero 6. Yep. And that opened with that wonderful dog short that yes. had me in tears thinking the dog was going to die before the movie. Movie. And I just want to say, I love Bao. I love Bao like some people like dogs. I love those dumplings. Delicious. Oh, yeah. I love the dumplings. I loved watching them get made. I don't know if you guys saw Isle of Dogs. There's a great sushi sh scene in there where just watching stop motion animated people make sushi. And so it kind of reminded me of that at the beginning when they're making that little dough ball. But cute little dough ball guy walking around. Not enough to make this a recommend. I would have been fine with cute little dough ball guy. Magical realism. I'm into that kind of stuff. I like Scott Pilgrim. It's like Pinocchio, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, this is don't be a helicopter parent, parents. <laughs> it's weird, though, when the dumpling grows a douchey goatee. And 
I understand the mother not wanting a dumpling to play soccer. It dented him. He could be squished in soccer. I don't understand this as a metaphor for a real boy. It's all the anxiety of the mother. It's her summing up her feelings as she lost her boy. I don't think any of this is actually happening. Again, these people are all self-medicating with food. They're eating pork buns. You're saying (laughs) she's eating her feelings at the end when she eats the dumpling. Yes, literally. Yeah, it's very Oedipal at that point. Plus, I don't feel like her problem is with her son who got engaged to a white woman is maybe not around as much. What's going on in that marriage? (laughs) Yeah, the husband's at the beginning eating, and then we never see him again with Dumpling Boy. Mm -mm, That's the real (laughs) problem. She needs to not worry about the bow. She needs to worry about her husband and why they're not relating to each other anymore. But father and son, mother and daughter, those are the relationships that are primary to these kinds of animated movies. So that's what they're going to focus on here. And I'm presuming that this is somewhat autobiographical, that this was made by Domi Shi. I think maybe one of the first female animators that got to make one of these. So that's a plus. Yeah, for that. And I don't know that a silent film is exactly the best place to address racism. I don't really look at color, especially in animated films. It wasn't until near the end. I'm like, wait, the mama hates the daughter-in-law because she's white? She's a horrible woman. Yeah, well, you know, she's outside the culture. And again, I think mothers want their children to idolize them on some level. I think there's some truth here. It's just, to me, Arnie, you called out that Incredibles is a Fantastic Four ripoff. I'm calling this little doughboy out as a Pillsbury ripoff. I have nothing to do with him. As soon as his face popped out, I'm like, ah, you ripoff. <laughs> Okay, so three red arrows for the opening short. Show up late to the screening, is what we're saying. (laughs) Yeah, mild. I mean, I don't really care is probably a more accurate. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of, eh. That better not show up for best animated short like a lot of these Pixar ones do. That's what got me mad. I was like, that's going to walk away with an Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) With a little goatee on the Oscar penciled in. (laughs) But anyway, yeah, Arnie, why don't you give them the plot to the real attraction here? We can find out all about Incredibles 2. Incredibles 2 picks up right where the first one left off, with the superpowered family, Father Bob Parr, a.k.a. Mr. Incredible, wife Helen, a.k.a. Elastigirl. Shouldn't she be Elastawoman now? Isn't she liberated and old enough? It's a little, yeah, still be using that girl moniker for her. Come on. Independent women, guys. Strong female protagonist. Super fast son, Dash? An invisible daughter, Violet, fighting the Underminer, who's come to rob a bank. Underminer gets away, and, as supers are still illegal, the department that provided the super relocation program is shut down. But Telcom Tycoon Winston DeVore, voiced by Bob Odenkirk, is a longtime superhero fan and has a plan to make them legal again. Elastigirl will fight crime in the city of New Ubrum and prove supers are still useful and needed. She does this equipped with tech provided by Winston's sister Evelyn, voiced by Catherine Keener. This leaves Bob at home playing Mr. Incredible Mom, helping Violet with boy troubles and adjusting to baby Jack-Jack's developing powers, which includes turning into a demon, firing lasers from his eyes, turning his body to fire, making copies of himself, and using all of this to fight a local raccoon. Meanwhile, in New Urbrum, Elastigirl has uncovered a new supervillain, the Screenslaver who is able to hypnotize people to do his bidding through the use of video screens. Elastigirl uncovers that screen slaver is actually Evelyn, who disagrees with her brother's hero worship and uses her hypnosis to make it seem like the supers are trying to kill ambassadors from across the globe. 
Evelyn gets Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl to wear the goggles and do her bidding, but Dash and Violet save their parents and the four fight off Evelyn and her hypnotized super slaves. With the help of Buddy Frozone, they save the ambassadors and capture Evelyn. And with this, supers are made legal again in over a hundred countries across the globe as credits roll. Here's my question, because this does pick up literally where the original film ends. What was your assumption about the status of superheroes going into this? Because, again, it's only implied, so I gotta blame myself for thinking this. The fact that there's gonna be this huge, big fight at the beginning here, and supers are still vilified, they're still illegal, was a little bit of a surprise to me. I figured by the end of that last film, we see the family team up to fight the Underminer. Okay, they're accepted now. People aren't gonna be fighting them. No, I didn't think that. Partly because they encouraged Dash to come in second. They were still playing by the rules of the day. They did not want to be singled out for being extraordinary. And I'm really glad I rewatched part one for part two because I'm impressed. 14 years later, the animation has gotten a lot better. The detail, the shading. I have nothing but props for how this movie looks. But they keep to themselves. We're seeing a beginning where... It's the exact same as the last one ended, but from a different point of view, because Violet had a crush on this boy in her class. Now we're going to see this entire Underminer attack from that point of view of Tony. It's a real Batman v Superman situation where we get to see the destructive metropolis from Bruce Wayne's point of view now. Mm. Uh, Again, (laughs) you make a joke, but it's also worth pointing out. Other films are covering this stuff. In between Incredibles, Incredibles 2, anything you might want to say about what being a superhero is has probably been addressed in one of the 120 films about the subject that have come out. That's what I liked about the originals. It's like, oh, we're going to take Alan Moore's Watchmen, where it's like this real gritty, realistic take on superheroes, and we're going to turn it into a Pixar film. Like, there is definitely those elements where we're going to ban superheroes because they're just destroying things, and they have too much power, and they're the actual villains. Yeah, seeing this 14 years later, trying to pretend no time has passed, I'll just say it is a little jarring, because I'm just in a different place with thinking about superheroes at this point. And they didn't have to do that, right? This family could have aged. We could have picked up at any given point, and it might have even been satisfying to see them having grown in their roles. That Violet, I mean, we already saw her being bold because she was the one that asked Tony out, but to really see how they've changed was an opportunity they decided not to take. Now, I understand this is common. The Simpsons, they've been on for 30 years and nothing has changed in that household, but I do think 14 years, you kind of do expect the characters to be different because you're different. But I like that they're keeping it the same. I really do. I wouldn't want The Incredibles Awakens, you know? I wouldn't want The Last Incredible where Mr. Incredible is throwing his super suit over his shoulder and he's all burned out. What about, like, Dash has a family of his own and their grandparents? I think going for the nostalgia is the right way to go. And they did say in interviews, you're able to do this because it's animation. Craig T. Nelson, he was in his 50s when he was doing the TV series Coach. He's not looking great right now. No, he what, he is looking thin and very old. Yeah, I'm worried about him. In that little <laughs> apology video at the beginning. But he sounds as good as ever. Holly Hunter sounds as good as ever. Everybody except the original boy voice of Dash was able to reprise their role. And that's because the Dash from part one was actually a prepubescent boy who is now in the workforce. He's probably almost 30. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they had to find another prepubescent boy. 
Right. And part of the appeal, you're right, is that they have an animation style that is very mod 60s, and they want to keep it in that era. That this is not an era like you and I live in. I mean, there are some of the luxury items, but they're presented as like steampunk or neo-futurism. It's the 50s, 60s vision of the future. Everyone doesn't have cell phones and they're not on the internet. It's not our world. They've kept it in this specialized 60s mod world, right down to the Disney castle that opens. Yeah, and going with that kind of 60s vibe, again, I haven't seen the original Incredibles for a while. Haven't seen it on the big screen since it came out. You guys just saw it on the big screen, so maybe it's true for the first one. The score, just those blaring horns. It just had a James Bond, Sean Connery era James Bond feel to me, the score as it would play. Just the horns were just so loud and it had to excitement. That's not a criticism. I really dug that, you know, talking about what genre is this? Yeah, it is kind of like a spy movie. And so I dug that element as well. Yeah, it's Michael Giacchino. He's proving me wrong. He actually did themes here. He actually did notes and not just sounds. Oh, this is the one you don't like. Okay. (laughs) Most of the time. But it was very reminiscent of the first one. I'll say, seeing this in IMAX, though, we stayed for the end credits. What if there's an end credit scene? And I just felt assaulted by the volume of those horns. <laughs> I was telling Stuart it was really painful. My wife did say, why is this movie so loud? Why is the music so loud? <laughs> I only noticed it during the credits, but I'm leaning over to Stuart like, damn it, I don't need to know who their Windows support person is. This person does not need to be in the credits. Are you going to list their pizza delivery guy, too? Why are the credits so long? (laughs) Yeah, they have some crazy credits in this one. Indeed. But by picking up seconds after the last film ended, it means that we get a resolution to a degree for the Underminer. They have good names for the villains. I like the idea that the Underminer comes and destroys the foundations of banks. And then as those structures fall, he can just vacuum up the money. A good character. Surprised he's only used here from the opening. He's used here to demonstrate that Mr. Incredible is very sloppy. I was waiting for him to come back. He was a joke at the last one, though, because Fantastic Four, their very first villain in issue one was the Mole Man who came up from underground. He's a punchline. The fact that they continued with him at all was surprising. The fact that he gets away and never comes back, even more surprising. I kept waiting for the third act, like Jack-Jack is going to somehow find him and burn him up or something. I don't know. I waited for that to be resolved. It's not going to be resolved. But again, I like this world. Like, they're going to have this huge chase with this giant drill, and it destroys banks. And then the suits come along. They're like, oh, well, it's all covered by insurance. We don't need your guys' help. It would have been fine. I kind of like that real-world stuff clashing with superheroes. But on the other hand, it does feel a little dated. We've had Civil War. We've had other movies movies tackled real world versus superhero worlds bumping against each other. It's important to reassert, because as Jacob pointed out, you might think that they were celebrated at the end of the first film, because we were certainly cheering them on. But no, the world is still very much against this. And it's pointed out that, like, had they done nothing, the banks being insured, it actually would have worked out better because Mr. Incredible is so messy. That's really the problem. It's the perception that if you invite superheroes into the world, that they will destroy more than they will save. Here, it does feel like gender politics are different 14 years later than the first one. I feel like... Oh boy, here's the stereotypical oafish man. He's exactly as he was in part one. He was very destructive. It's his destruction that caused supers to be put out in the first place, although he did save a guy's life, which was the first chink in the armor. But here, we're going to find out that Mr. Incredible is the problem, not the solution. 
Right. And that's kind of tapping into things that are contemporary, things that they may not have even anticipated when they started this, but certainly we're in a groundswell of movement towards empowering women, moving them to positions of power, and really challenging a patriarchy that exploits them. And here, we like Mr. Incredible. I don't think that we would ever see the marriage as him intentionally diminishing and domesticating her. She was the one that wanted that she fell in love with home life. You remember that first movie, she was the one that thought, hey, this is enough for me. I can find enough in this domestic life to be sustained. He was the one that had the wanderlust. Now they're going to flip that and show that Helen is a little bit of a hypocrite. In the hotel, they have a interesting conversation, though, because... Maybe it's the politics of the day, but I found myself really drawn to the conversation between Bob and Helen. It's in the trailer. Helen says, to change the law, I have to break it. To save my family, I have to leave it. And they have this conversation about law versus lawlessness where Helen doesn't want the job. She wants to obey the law. She thinks doing right is the law of very statist opinion. But Bob says something that I've seen in many of my libertarian groups. Do you respect the law when the law is disrespectful? I appreciate the conversation. The film doesn't do anything with it. No. If it would have done something with that, it would have been better. It's just an aside. And, you know, like the first movie, you want to position the characters in the opposite direction of where they're going to go. If you remember in the first Incredibles, Bob in the opening documentary said something to the effect of, sometimes I wish the world would clean up after itself and I could take a break. While that becomes his nightmare for the movie, while Helen says, there's no way I'm staying home and not being super. And then, of course, she's the one that's domesticated. Here, they've done a very similar thing by having Helen, the one that is happy to obey the law, be the lawbreaker. So it's character positioning. But is it best utilized in the story? Maybe not. Here's my issue. That last film, it was about Bob, his midlife crisis, and we're going to focus on him. He's going to get this secret job fighting a big robot and doing superhero stuff, and it's focused on his story, and then you got the family. They're going to come along eventually. I feel like this one, hey, let's put the woman at the forefront, and she's going to be the superhero now doing the secret stuff, but a lot of this film is going to go back to Bob and be about him. Now he's got to be Mr. Mom, and isn't it tough for a guy to do girl work? I feel like they want to put a girl at the forefront, a woman at the forefront of the film, but we're still going to spend a lot of time with that dude and seeing the troubles he's going to go through. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mr. Incredible is the favorite character, right? I mean, he's my favorite character when I think about the original, partly because he was the one that had the most storyline. It was really his arc to recognize that he could still be super in middle age. And now, with him being marginalized, this story doesn't really have a lot of use for him. As you point out, it ends up being like he's just there to fulfill some comedy bits while Helen carries the movie. It's not that Helen isn't interesting enough to carry it. It's that we don't want to see an Incredibles movie without I've never really had a favorite Incredible. It is telling about how kind of lukewarm I am. Yes, he was the star of the last movie, but if I were to think of my favorite Incredible, it was probably Dash. Mr. Incredible's kind of blah. He's just kind of there. He's the stalwart Superman, and I think I like his kids more than I like the parents. I might go with Helen, because she gets to do the most creative stuff with her power, but I think about this as a family dynamic. You don't have... 
Bob as a single Incredibles film. You got to have the family, and that's what works for me. I want to see them all come together and work together as a team. Yeah, agreed with that. Ultimately, the movie is about a family dynamic. To single anyone out for too long would be the wrong impulse. No one gets a spinoff in The Incredibles. They are stronger as a family unit here. And so, after this underminer battle, the family has to go in hiding. One last time, Rick Dicker has to clean it up. Even he's being retired at this point. The guy that relocates Supers is told, no more of this. So the best he can do is throw him in a motel for two weeks and, yeah, zap the memory of poor Tony so that not only does he not remember seeing Violet wearing that Incredibles outfit, he doesn't even know who Violet is. I kind of saw that coming. I knew the neuralizer was going to come into play. But yeah, like you said, Jacob, that 60s aesthetic, now it's a suction cup and it looks like a giant projector and things. But I can't tell, is that hotel supposed to be a nice hotel in the 60s or a really rundown no-tell motel today? (laughs) Because if I see a hotel with doors facing out, you know, instead of having hallways, I now think of that as skeevy. Well, yeah, those were nice at one point. Yeah, in the 60s, but now... I think this film plays off of both those aesthetics, though. Yeah, there's a bit of nostalgia, but we're also watching this from a modern point of view where, yeah, you do not want to stay at that hotel. It's not a home. The point is their home blew up in the first film, and rather than getting a new home, they've been relegated to two weeks, mind you. Two weeks. No new jobs given to them. No more insurance squat here and then one of them has to go back to work and Helen figures that yeah it's her turn she saw how much Bob suffered at the insurance company and that was a terrible job you could see that he resented having to screw people out of their money and so she is going to try and find a job and she does through a little bit of happenstance during the underminer fight it catches the attention of a shady character I I hesitate to call him a villain or an asset a multimedia tycoon named Wynn. And he saves Frozone, because lest you forget Frozone, Samuel L. Bleep Jackson is fighting against the Underminer as well. And when things go bad, Frozone freezes his way out of there to be picked up in a limo that Wynn sent. And it's Frozone who shows up at the hotel with just full of swagger. He's just like, oh yeah, I'm back. And tells them to go meet Wynn and to wear their old outfits because this guy's nostalgic. Much like Brad Bird. I think that this is playing off of Brad Bird having a similar affection for old looking retro steampunk kind of vision. And it's always interesting seeing how their choice for the voice actor affects my perception of the character. Like Winston is Bob Odenkirk. I'm a big fan of Better Call Saul where he's a kind of this slimy lawyer and that character he played in Breaking Bad. So like when I think Bob Odenkirk and he's showing up, hey, I, I want to give you a job. I'm like, uh-oh, this is the villain. And then they introduce his sister, Catherine Keener. I'm thinking, get out. I'm like, okay, these are the bad guys of the film. Absolutely, Catherine Keener. When we find out that the villain of this film is into hypnosis, yes. all I could think <laughs> about was her and her teacup and get out. But easily, I know when we're introduced to Wynn and his sister, one of them are going to be the bad guy again. I think it's a replay of the first movie in that last time we had Syndrome, who had a female intermediary make Mr. Incredible do heroic things again, all as a plot to undermine supers. And here we've got 
the same plot, basically, where Wynn isn't the bad guy, but his sister Evelyn is, and she's working with Wynn again to undermine the superheroes, and all the jobs that Elastigirl's getting sent out to do is really orchestrated by the person telling her to do it. Yeah, this is my biggest frustration with the film. 14 years you've had to write a story, and you're just going to do the first movie again, but swap the genders? Now it's... Elastigirl that's going on the secret missions, who we think is hiring her. We all know that they're bad guys, or one of them is at least. It's frustrating how long it takes for that reveal to happen because I'm anticipating it right from the first. That's exactly right. It's disappointing how much, how many of the notes they replay. I know in sequels, certainly in a sequel where it's been a long time since audiences have seen the last one, you do want to recall what they loved about the original, but you don't want to telegraph who your villain is. And by doing it exactly the same way, we know it's both or one of these telecommunication people. We tend to think it might be the guy because, you know, he's flashy and he's talking about perception being everything and he wants to control everyone with presenting images. And that's also what the villain does. But once we realize this is a female-centric storyline, we're looking much harder at his sister, Evelyn. And I blame Brad Bird for this. I think the man can't have a surprise. I knew who Syndrome was last time with Incrediboy. I thought that was a neon sign of obviousness. And here he does it again. It was one of my big problems with the last movie is it had no surprise. Neither does this one. True enough. The question I have going into this is, you know, one of the things that I think we were left debating about the original one was, what is it to be exceptional, and is it right to hide that to blend in with others? That was a theme I so desperately wanted them to carry on into this movie. And I think there's a part of this movie that would like to talk about the way the world has gone under the influence of screens. They're going to have a villain named Screen Slaver, and every time someone's looking at a TV at an inopportune moment, they will be under the control of this villain. Certainly, if they wanted to tell a modern-day story, I'll tell you what, I lost my cell phone while I was traveling in Europe. (laughs) And you become hyper-aware of how addictive people are to their cell phones and screens when you don't have one anymore. It was stunning, sometimes horrifying to be walking in crowded public places and realize no one is looking up. I did empathize with Green Slaver in this film. Like he, she gets one monologue. It doesn't really match up with the tactics he's taking, you know, with the monorail and all that. But I'm like, yeah, this is right. Get off the screens. I'm kind of, let Screen Slaver go a bit longer. Maybe he could solve some of our issues. Not only that, but here's a juicy idea. Don't cell phones make us equal to superheroes? Don't we not need them? Because any super technique that they have, we can replicate with these devices. The real villain would be someone with a cell phone. I think that that would have been a way to play it. I think that there is a version of this movie that tackles that contemporary idea, but I think much of this movie backs away from that. And I feel like it goes for safe and obvious scenarios and not the things that I cared about most. I mean, Helen and Evelyn will sit down twice to have these, and they feel really out of place. I think they're good conversations, but they don't fit in the film, but they'll sit down to talk about consumerism versus really art. And Evelyn, she just creates, and then it's up to Wynn to go and market it and sell it. And she's just the creative force. But, you know, they have this whole debate going on the whole time about which is more important. And it just feels like, hey, Brad Bird wants to talk about art versus commerce. And it doesn't really integrate into this 
story at all. And Pixar really wants to talk about pro-women after John Lasseter, the head of their whole company, has now gone underground and is, I think, being removed from the company because of his treatment of women at the company. They are having a PR problem of their own, so they want to present the image of women in power. And so this story does become maybe also just as topical, but to me, less dramatically interesting, the idea that women are oftentimes in the shadow of men and women should feel empowered to be super and not let men do that heroic work. And yet... Elastigirl is the one chosen for the obvious reasons, and it's going to bruise Mr. Incredible's ego that he is a destructive force. He brings down buildings. Elastigirl is finesse. And yet, you've got this rich wind saying, I'm going to dress you this way. I'm going to put you in this suit. There's just a little Svengali going on. I'm going to give you this bike, and I'm going to take you to this city. So the man controls all of Elastigirl's actions. The fact that he takes her to a different city away from her husband, I thought they might go with the opposite of what they did in the first one, where Helen thought Bob was cheating on her, that maybe Wynne was going to try to lure Elastigirl away from her husband or something. Yeah, I agree. I think it would have been interesting. You know, ultimately, they're going to hypnotize Helen. But I always think it's more interesting when you can convince a character with logic that if Evelyn could appeal to Helen because, hey, my brother treats me like your husband treats you, if you get that on an intellectual level, to me, that's more gripping than I got magic glasses and I'm going to slap them on your face. Speaking of more gripping... Everything Elastigirl does is more interesting than anything Mr. Incredible does. I've seen Mr. Mom. I love Mr. Mom. You, Bob, are no Mr. Mom. Mr. Mom works because it came in a very specific context, like of 80s, early Reagan recession, women going back to work. Tuna prices being increased. <laughs> that as well, yes. I don't know what tuna costs these days <laughs> because the economy's doing so great. I don't have to worry about that, but yeah. Nowadays, it just feels like, well, men do stay at home and raise the kids and women go to work. This is supposed to be funny now, the bumbling dad. And we're going to have a, they don't say common core, but we're going to have a common core math joke. That was funny, you know, eight years ago when Obama was president, I guess. Yeah, I'm totally with you on this. This feels like an 80s comedy. And that's wrong for a movie made in 2018. We need to feel like this isn't weird. It isn't weird. There's nothing about this scenario that feels out of place with contemporary society. Men get displaced from the workplace and become stay-at-home dads all the time. I've known many, and there's no shame in it. And usually they do it without this kind of learning curve that Mr. Incredible has to go through where he has to fail so that he can come back. And I guess maybe the character arc is he's learning to be more tidy. Is he less mean? (laughs) I mean, is he less messy now that he has learned what it is to pick up after others? If it's there, I feel like it's applied in too thin a coat. Yeah, at the end, he's just as destructive as he is at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, they do stop a building from coming down, but it's Frozone who does that, not Mr. Incredible. And did he never help Dash with homework before? Did he never deal with Violet before? Violet's blaming him for the fact that Tony doesn't remember her anymore. I think it's really her own fault for ripping off her mask in disgust. If she she's misplacing her anger. But yeah, the fact that we have the sullen, moody, adolescent girl who's going to be invisible and eat her feelings by going to the refrigerator and then slamming the door to her room. <laughs> True. And... What I like, my favorite part of this movie, actually, is something you probably wouldn't guess. 
Jack Jack. Mm. No, I agree. This is what works most for me because what's been fun with these Incredibles films is they do look at real life and how would that clash up with superheroes? So yeah, you have a newborn baby. Now powers are manifesting. How is that going to work when a baby's just going to shoot laser beams and you it can't control that? He reminds me of a Tom Avery creation. Like he feels from that retro Looney Tunes era, something like a Tasmanian devil, mm-hmm. you know? Like, he turns into a devil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and there is something very fun about watching that. He is un like any of the other characters in this family, he'll end up being classified as a polymorphous super. And I think that's true. I mean, I think in households today, people are learning that sometimes their members are artistic or have fluid sexuality, and you're learning how to incorporate that difference into the family unit. I think this stuff is good, too. My favorite Incredibles film, I can say that right now, is Jack Jack Attack, the video short that I saw, I think it was before Finding Nemo, that's the parallel story during The Incredibles 1 of what happens to the babysitter who's babysitting Jack Jack. Yeah, I was thinking that because I'm like, doesn't the family know he has powers? But then I'm like, oh, that I guess that was all the babysitter. They didn't see that. And he had powers when Syndrome tried to kidnap Jack-Jack. So yeah, this is the first time they're realizing it has powers. And look, this is made for real little kids, this scene. But I do love it when Jack-Jack fights that raccoon. You know what it reminded me of? I love the scene too. But I've seen two Ice Age films. I've seen zero, thankfully. (laughs) I don't really care for any of the Mastodon stuff. But you give me Scrat chasing that acorn. I love Scrat. And this is the Scrat scene (laughs) of this movie. It certainly has that quality. It certainly will be the thing that when you get to these home environments that you wouldn't cut. But this movie, it felt long to me because I saw a marathon. No, it is long. It's almost two hours, I think. But yeah, I'd like to believe that even at my freshest, taking it in on a single viewing, this runs a little long. And it runs long because, again, I think Mr. Incredible is a favorite character. We don't want to reduce his size in the story, but his importance in the story is obviously much more minimal and they spend way too much time on this Uh, you need just a few of this jack jack stuff as characters slowly realize what he can do i'd also argue you don't need some of these supporting characters i know we all like samuel jackson but frozone is a nothing in this movie and so is edna well yeah frozone was a nothing in the last movie either just to show there were other heroes who's a friend he plays that same role here come on sam jackson probably did this like a McDonald's order. He drove up, said a few lines, drove away, and got a press tour out of it. Edna does feel so forced in here that she's going to be the one, I don't like babies, darling. And then to be babysitting. You know what it reminded me of is Joe Pesci in Lethal Weapon 3 and 4. Oh, don't go there. It's not that bad. (laughs) I'm just saying, (laughs) in 2, he was integral to the story, and he had a reason for being there. And in 3 and 4, it's people like Joe Pesci. See, maybe because I don't really enjoy all the Bob drama. Like I I do like the Jack-Jack stuff. So when he sees Edna and Bob comes back and Jack-Jack's sitting there like walking just like her, but with a lollipop, I don't know. I I like this cute, humorous stuff in the film. I think you have to have a place for them. Because we did like Frozone and we did like Edna, you'd want to see them here. They just haven't created a story where they matter. And and in a movie that feels too long, they're the parts that I think, unfortunately, need to be on the editing room floor. And it just shows Mr. Incredible is completely incompetent. The only time he can get his feet under him is when he gives the way the baby. 
Yeah, <laughs> you might not be wrong, Stuart. I mean, I thought Edna was going to make whole new cool suits that do all new things for The Incredible. No, it just makes one for Jack-Jack that has like fire retardant in it. Yeah, she's resentful because an unseen designer has put a new dark spin on Helen and she's got a different look with a new motorcycle. And again, she's off on her own. She is the creation of Wynn. She is, in many ways, you say a Svengali, whether he realizes it or not. He does mansplain, he does take control, he does present the image that she acts out. And that's why, again, that could bring her closer together with Evelyn, who has worked for her brother for many years and who is equally resentful about his need to steal the spotlight. And whether Wynne realizes it or not isn't really my problem. Brad Bird doesn't realize it is, I think, the problem. I think he's trying to bring to Incredibles a little bit of the Ocean's 8 flavor and show sisters doing it for themselves. But no, they're behind every great woman, there's a really rich man telling her how to dress. Well, this does feel like Bruce Wayne putting together the Justice League. Like, when we'll find out their whole story with him and Evelyn is their parents love superheroes. Someone broke in and they went to call them. But because heroes were illegal, no hero showed up and the parents get shot. And when he, he's this billionaire industrialist. He does feel like Bruce Wayne, except he doesn't put on the suit. He just hires other supers. Right, exactly. He is creating supers in his own image to some degree. And his dad did that as well. We saw in a little montage that he created statues and phone lines. And he was trying to be central station by which all superheroes act out. Even now, there's a green room full of C-string supers that are wanting to be like Helen as she goes about saving the monorail and trying to find the screen slaver. And screen slaver, I saw him in the trailer just briefly. They just show him at the end of one of the trailers. I wish he was a real villain. I actually like the screen slaver. He's Bane. Didn't you see? Like, he's got the same <laughs> mouthpiece as Bane does in Nolan's Dark Knight Rises. But again, with the visual look of this movie, one thing I like is because... Now Elastigirl has to keep to the shadows. It's like the EG on her chest is sequined or something. It's really reflective. It's metallic. If this was a toy or a statue, I would absolutely love that EG on the front. And when she goes to confront the screen slaver... Yeah, when she goes into that dark apartment to find him, my girls, they did get a little scared. Like, they play that up as almost like Silence of the Lambs when Clarice, you know, goes into the basement and it's all dark. And yeah, it was a little scary. It was a little fun. You know, there is some tense moments. I don't believe she's going to get the real screen slaver at this point, though. No, but when all those lights come on and it's really vivid. How is there not a warning at the beginning of this about epileptic? seizures. Actually, it is an issue. I saw an article just this morning that people are having epileptic seizures. This movie is not epilepsy friendly. That said, gorgeous scene. I'm loving oh, yeah. the visuals. Yeah, it's that live footage. Like, it looked like some of that footage was actually, like, live action camera work or something of, of static or something. It, it has an animation style unlike the rest of the film. I don't know if it hypnotized me, but it really does capture your eyes. And I think it is all animated. What threw me is in the background, like they're watching Godzilla at one point and it's Incredibles animation Godzilla and they're watching The Outer Limits and it's real Outer Limits audio with Incredibles animation. Then they watch Johnny Quest and it's actual Johnny it's Quest Johnny footage. Quest. That yeah. threw me. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> he's ticking off boxes. Sometimes he's commenting on what's going on in the plot, but he's also just saying, here are my references. This is the animation style that I love. This is the world I'm evoking. But using, as Arnie pointed out, really 
cutting edge animation style. This is a great looking movie. I thought the original looked great. I'm not going to dog the original by saying it had a long way to go. I thought it proved that Pixar could finally draw human beings. Yeah, you compare that Incredibles, that first one, to uh, the humans and like the first Toy Story, night and day difference. Huge steps. But I mean, this is an even more just as large leap forward and Congratulations to all the technicians that worked on this. It is one of Pixar's best looking films. The first one holds up. Seeing it on an IMAX screen, the first one still looks good. And yet seeing these back to back really drove home for me and seeing them both in the exact same format. So I can't say, oh, this looks better on the big screen. Seeing them both there, this is just a gorgeous looking film. I mean, just I could watch it on mute and just be taken with every visual. So Helen is winning the PR battle. If Wynn's idea is that we can finally decriminalize superpowers by presenting an alternative perception, because all that people have the perception are, are what politicians give them, well, she's out there now. She has saved a bunch of people on a monorail that went backwards. She appeared on a talk show and then later was caught on camera catching the person that is screen slaver, supposedly. She also saved an ambassador who is going to be able to pull strings in governments to get this document signed. We're all building to the idea that we're finally going to get this piece of paper that everyone wants signed saying, yes, superheroes will be legal. Is this the reason why Mr. Incredible puts up with the home life? Or is he in love with the home life? Does he fall in love with it? Would he prefer to be there by the end of this film? Or is he just sucking it up? and waiting for Helen to deliver this document so that he can go back to being Mr. Incredible. Sucking it up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that he always wants to be a superhero, and uh, the second he gets a chance to put on that costume to go help Helen out when he gets that call, he's there doing He's like, no, no, you know what? Vi's having a tough time with a boy. I got to stay home and take care of that. I, I have full confidence as a man and his woman. I have full confidence that you can do it. No, that's not the situation. He is out the door. He should love the home life a little bit more after all of this, right? We do see that he finally conquers new math and he does figure out how to get Jack-Jack back from alternate dimensions using cookies. I mean, he does get better at this, but I didn't see a moment where I felt like he would be like, you know what? This is all I need in my life. So you saw what I saw. He never fell so much in love with his family unit that it could be sustainable. And it's not like he was estranged from them either and this brought them closer. The children, poor Dash gets crapped upon in this movie dash is forgotten while doing the homework while the dad goes and reads to jack jack dash has no plot of his own there's no girl for jack the way there's a boy for violet i think the one thing that they give him and again it's what i was talking about at the beginning if they were making a movie about how we become addicted to technology and screens we see that he is constantly going for a remote control early on when they get moved to a new house he's punching buttons and it causes the sofa to fall into the pool. Later, he gets his dad's incredible car remote. It's being auctioned on television and he nearly blows up the showroom with the missiles. I think they're trying to show that kids are given technology they can't handle. And in a different movie, that might have been a lesson that sunk deeper. 
Yeah, so enslave the kids and use them for evil and have the parents have to save the kids. I mean, my wife and I just recently had a thing with our daughters where no fault of their own, they're just kids, but because of technology and access to things, some stuff happened where we had to sit down and have a long talk and go, okay, we got to regulate your access to the internet a whole lot more. Like, I think that's really topical. They don't touch that at all, though, in this film. I'm trying to review this movie, but I keep wishing for that movie. I do feel like Pixar movies, when they're at their best, they are relevant. Pixar movies are heart-filled and relevant, and they don't repeat themselves, and this movie is making all those errors. I'm not saying I'm having a bad time. I'm saying that I'm constantly bumping up against the fact that this movie is not as fresh and incredible as the first Incredibles was. I'm right there with you. Yeah, it feels like a retread. In 14 years, what you should be apologizing is, wow, we haven't had an original thought in 14 years. (laughs) Not that it took so long to have the original thought. But I'm also enjoying the film for what it is, much like I did the first one. It is what it is. The superhero fights, all these secondary heroes, I do find them kind of funny that we have Void, who can shoot these portals and yeah void's got some cool powers that's gonna be a really fun power later on if you've ever played the game portal it reminded me a lot of that see i feel like the first movie we had frozone because mr incredible was the main character and he needed a bro to talk to void is sort of that for helen she's the younger girl that was like elastigirl in her early days and there is some kind of mentoring going on there so she's important the other ones are just kind of jokes right the screech the owl yeah, Screech freaked me out because I'm like, does he look like an owl? Is that a mask he's wearing? <laughs> yes. I actually wrote, is he a mutant? Is he a manimal? What is the owl thing? I loved Reflux, though. <laughs> oh, Reflux was. I liked the idea until you saw those powers. And it's not just he's got like heartburn and he's breathing fire. There is actual like goo and regurgitation on the ground when he's done. Yeah, I, I have a Reflux problem myself. So this was the best <laughs> joke in my It was the one I could most relate to. I don't have a family. So some of this family dynamic stuff, maybe they're really nailing it for some people, but I'm not connecting with. But Reflux is my dude. Yeah, I like him. (laughs) I get it. But yeah, they're fun. And again, they're dopey enough that we aren't ever going to pick them over the Incredibles family. Obviously, they have a lot to learn about being a super. And maybe if the law gets changed, they'll be super. But of course, they just become pawns in the army of Evelyn when it's introduced that she is, in fact, screen slaver, has these magic glasses. Okay. They make a big deal. It's This is about perception and how people perceive supers. So they put a little camera on Helen's costume. And like, I always notice that little dot. I'm like, screen slaver, that's going to play something big. I think the only reason there's a costume is so Helen can see that the screen slaver was tapped into that feed when she's reviewing some footage and that helps her figure out it's Evelyn. Is is that the only purpose for that camera on her costume? Plot wise, yes. Yeah, okay, thank you. I mean, they do use her body cam footage to show her saving the day earlier on when she's doing that motorcycle chase. And I do love the use of her powers. The motorcycle can split in half and she is the bond keeping it together and balancing the front and the back they do show that on the news to say see a super did something and it didn't bring down a building 
Yeah. On one hand, the message of this movie seems to be there's too many screens. We're looking too much at cameras and not enough at real life. On the other hand, I I also feel like cops wearing cameras is probably ultimately a good thing. It will help reassert trust in the public with law enforcement. So basically, Brad Bird isn't able to rush to judgment in the ways that it would serve this movie. Like if he could make clear delineations about what is good and bad about our modern world and screens, he could vilify those things and make screen slaver all bad. But as it is, yeah, a lot of these ideas are introduced without context. And I don't know if having body cams on Elastigirl is a good or bad thing. It just ends up becoming a minor plot point and not much else. There should have been something else. The suit should have turned against her in some way, given that it was designed by Evelyn. But no, Evelyn's just going around putting glasses on people. And if I cared more about Void and some of these secondary characters, if they'd had more than one line, I don't even find out Brick's name until after he's already evil. It would have meant a lot more to me to see this army of zombie heroes. What is Evelyn's... I guess she doesn't like superheroes. She blames them for the reason her parents dying because they could have just gone to a safe room. They went and put their faith in superheroes, which let them down. They die. So I guess she's got a beef against them. Superheroes are already illegal. Like she could have just hypnotized her brother and convinced him, hey, let's not try to legalize this. And she would have got her way, right? This feels like a very convoluted plot to me. But that wouldn't be any fun to watch, would it? No. (laughs) Well, this is a rehash of the first film, which isn't kind of fun to watch either. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I appreciate the fact that Pixar has always tried to find nuance in their villains. No one is purely evil. And there are real good reasons why she's doing what she's doing. But... They're kind of underdeveloped. Ultimately, at the end of the day, yeah, she has her point that maybe her parents would be alive if the dad wasn't trying to act like a superhero. That said, I really don't connect with Evelyn, and that's a problem for the rest of this movie. As she gets her plot into gear, who isn't rooting for superheroes to be decriminalized? I know we've had this debate. Batman versus Superman and Civil War, but ultimately any audience for superhero movies is going to be okay with legalizing superheroes. This is 2018, uh, Deadpool 2, Infinity War, Black Panther. They've made like $3 billion (laughs) worldwide. We don't have a problem with superheroes. 14 years is too long to try to make that point. And so, yeah, we get a climax here on the yacht where it's being signed. The ambassador and other world leaders have agreed to come on for Wynn's television cameras and show the world that we are going to side with the supers and reverse a bad decision. Because she has magic sunglasses, these superheroes are then going to embarrass themselves on the camera by making threats and undermining the whole legalization so that presumably it will never be ratified and no superhero will ever be legal again the fact that they're choosing ambassadors to do this arranging it so that she saves an ambassador from the screen slaver and then they get all these ambassadors on a boat i did think that perhaps the siblings were on it together because win is just all about let's get on my boat let's go on this boat <laughs> i thought they were going to go to international seas so they could do something illegal and not be held accountable for it <laughs> Yeah, it it just gives them somewhere to go and some place to set this climax that's remote, that we don't have to worry about the messy destruction of a city here. Once they finally reveal the twist, which I saw from the very beginning, once that all gets revealed, I get much more into this film. Again, not because it's a great 
plot or story or you're hitting relevant themes so much. But as a superhero movie, yeah, I like we talked about the visuals and the animation. I, I think that's a lot of fun when Vi and Dash and Jack Jack finally get the car and they go to rescue their parents. Like I, all this stuff I'm enjoying at just a, a popcorn superhero level. Yeah, we want to see the kids save the parents at this point. I'm not any more on Helen's side than Mr. Incredible. I will say this, though. This has always been a scary scenario. I talked about it even with Shining. Watching parents turn on their children is just innately horrifying. Even Frozone in this, when he turns against them, it's scary. They're very upsetting, have always been upsetting, even in cartoons and innocuous fare. A purple Smurf is what I go to. <laughs> there was an episode of the Smurfs, yes. the most innocuous of cartoon characters, where there was a bug that bit them on the tail, and one by one, virally, they became evil, ganapping purple Smurfs. That were biting each other on the ass. There was so much wrong with that. They became zombies. And I was having purple Smurf flashbacks oh, no. in this climax, watching these once heroic people turn evil and threaten children. It is tense in its own way. And I do think that it will probably alarm... They were wise enough to know that Helen and Bob are never going to physically attack these children. They give it to Screech and the others to be the heavies because it would be too much to see Elastigirl beating on her kids. An aside, I did go back and rewatch the Purple Smurf episode and it is still disturbing <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> I, I'm sure it is. I'm never going back. Yeah, this end, I do like the Incredibile. I feel bad for the collection who bought it and it's robbed <laughs> from him and mr incredible even said no we're not going to take the car back that guy bought it even though i was told it was destroyed but dash is gonna use that car to get them onto the boat and we get the big fight that it keeps going around evelyn does not seem like she'd be that difficult to take down her only power is look into my glasses well, literally, they just have to pull the glasses off and smash them. Yeah, it doesn't take long to get everyone on the side. My other favorite moment, other than Jack-Jack and the raccoon, is when Crush is like, what do you mean uncrush? Yeah. Why don't anyone uncrush? It's like asking you to unpunch. Yeah, that was kind of satisfying. That was the right team up. Mr. Incredible versus him seemed like the fair fight. Well, yeah, you make it if it's a female-centric story. Helen working with Void, getting up to the plane and trying to convince Evelyn to turn the plane around. You're right. It's just not unlike the last movie, the climax just kind of runs out of gas. Yeah, there is a plane that's going to crash. Again, these are visuals that you've already shown us. I mean, one of the things you can say about why that first Incredibles is better as an animated movie than a live action movie is they were able to show us a more epic scenario than any superhero movie had done before. These days, that's not true. And they're just going to trains, planes, automobiles. It's just, it, it, <laughs> there's just sort of a fatigue that I'm feeling, and them struggling to find a new plateau for the superhero genre. They also replay the Frozone wife joke here, which I actually, re-watching Incredibles for the third time, the thing that got me to laugh out loud once was Frozone's wife. Like, honey, this is for the greater good. I am your wife. I am the greatest good you'll ever get. That made me laugh out loud in the theaters. I did not remember that joke. Hey, here, they just replay it as a nagging wife when he wants to put his suit back on and go help the boat. I wish they'd 
played that up a little more. We've never seen Honey, right? Like, nope. there's no action figure for her. It's kind of like sitcoms do this all the time, where, like, Home Improvement, there's the neighbor over the fence. <laughs> She's the Wilson of, of the universe yes. here. <laughs> yeah, in Cheers, Norm had a wife you never would see. Uh, it's, it just, it plays to that kind of aesthetic, and yeah, it's fun in a sitcom kind of way. But he shows up, and he's the one who stops the boat from crashing. Mr. Incredible helps turn the rudders. I guess that was Dash's idea. Like, why don't you steer the boat? And then Violet's like, yeah, use the rudders. And Mr. Incredible goes underwater and turns the rudders. And yeah, Dash should have figured this out by using his new math. There you go. Yeah. Or, or bring back Underminer. I, again, I kept waiting for him yes. to, to just get in here. <laughs> that would have added a needed complexity to what is kind of a very boring finale. Yeah, it is. It's just, we're getting to the end. It's been kind of a long time. I'm glad for it. Frozone saves the day. Supers are legal again, which means it's almost like, thank God I don't have to stay home with those kids anymore. <laughs> well, it's what we want. And it's if they're going to make a third one, we don't necessarily want to have this debate again. We want to see, again, what I think the promise of that first one is, is what would it look like in a world where everyone is super Technology could maybe do that. And th that's really going to be the fight is how do they stand apart and be exceptional in the face of exceptional technology innovation? That could be a plot for the third one. How do you stop Goldman Sachs with super strength? You know, yeah. how do you stop the criminals of today with the powers of yesteryear? But we know the PARs are united because they're all wearing E's outfit. Again, they're back to the red. And even Vi, who had kind of throughout this, uh, had been sort of turning against uh, the family because Tony didn't like her. Well, we see here at the very end, she's willing to give up her movie date with Tony to fight crime with her family. We see her, them go after just, I don't know, some bank robbers. They're shooting their guns. This is where I thought the underminer would show up again. Like, this is round two. It would be fun if the Underminer was like going to be at the end of every movie and the beginning of the next one and never caught. Yeah. That's just their James Bond action opening for every Incredibles film is going after the Underminer. <laughs> and the Underminer's fun with his jackhammer hands and things. He really proved himself to not be a Mole Man ripoff in this one with the bank robbery and the big vacuum and everything. I I liked the Underminer. This, it did feel like we were going back to the beginning of the last one, though, in that in the beginning of the first movie, we got to see Mr. Incredible. He's going to his wedding and he's stopping various petty criminals along the way. Now, at the end, they're going to stop more petty criminals as a family. I don't think it takes five people, to, including a super baby with laser eyes, to stop a bank robbery. But maybe four of them can stop Mr. Incredible from demolishing the place while Elastigirl saves the day. But will there be more movies? I, I mean, I saw the box office grosses. They're going to want <laughs> one. I, You know, I, I can't decide, even in watching this finale, yes, it does feel like the end of a second installment, but they could stop here, too. I do feel like they've said a lot about the superhero genre. You don't want to wait until 2032 for the next one? <laughs> this is going to be the before sunrise of animated <laughs> films every 14 years. All, all the Pixar babies are actually the next generation to make the next Incredibles ah. films. <laughs> Very interesting. I really think Brad Bird is done. He, you know, I don't think Brad Bird will come back for 14 mm -hmm. years. I think, you know, he passed on Star Wars. He was in line to do The Force Awakens. Right. I think that he took 14 years to do this. And then what he did didn't really tell me he had a story to tell. It told me he went back to the well. I think about the other Pixar 
sequels or prequels. I'm like Monsters University. It's just like, oh, let's do Revenge of the Nerds, but with monsters. I think Toy Story is the only one. Like, I think each of those installments gets stronger, but Pixar, maybe you don't deal with sequel. Uh, those Cars movies make a lot of money, though, I guess, with the little children. The last one didn't, The Last Cars. How did Finding Dory do? I didn't see it. I've seen about half of Finding Dory, started watching it with the girls, and yeah, it was entertaining. Again, it's, we're trying to find another fish, but it's entertaining. Here's my thing is, this is Disney. Disney takes the cash cows and puts them into the milking machine, and eventually a husk of what used to be a cash cow walks out, right? Star Wars. (laughs) Star Wars. (laughs) So, Disney may force this to happen because i feel that pixar is going more to the sequel well under disney and disney is known they won't let anything die big hero 6 didn't do very well and now there's a big hero 6 tv series mm-hmm. aladdin the direct-to-video stuff i mean sequels are their bread and butter there will be more incredibles but i think if it's a feature it won't be brad bird but do we want them i, I guess we need to wrap up our thoughts on this part two Jacob Stewart, how incredible is Incredibles 2? Jacob. I'm I'm in a weird place with this one because I feel like if I didn't see the first Incredibles movie, I probably would have enjoyed this one a lot more because I was just thinking, oh, this is such a redo of that first one. Which was a redo of how many other superhero movies? That was my complaint. No, that one feels fresh and well done. Yeah, it could have taken elements, but that one at least felt like here's people that understood the genre and could give it a fresh coat of paint and a new spin. No, give me a a family dynamic superhero movie that worked as well as Incredibles. I don't think there's one out there. None of the Fantastic Four films, but this one, that's my biggest problem is it just feels like after 14 years you're just gonna redo the first one (sighs) okay i mean you're lucky pixar that i like that first one and i think this is a great family to watch and i like the dynamic between the parents and the children now you add in jack jack developing his powers it's all that weird tangential stuff that i really enjoyed in this film the actual plot not so much i'm like "Eh, i've seen this i know who the bad guy is okay let's let's get on let's get to a flashy fight so yeah not as strong again that first incredibles film i hold in very high regards as, as just one of the best superhero films it's it'd be way up there this one is it, it's a shadow of that it's all right it, again it's got the humor there it's got the the fights that i enjoyed again with this animation style you're, you're i mean maybe you could pull this off with the mr fantastic live action now but i like the elastic girl stuff i like dash running around all of that violet with her force fields all, all that stuff is fun here and so yeah I, i'm gonna give this one a mild recommend Stuart. Yeah, it's a recommend, but I think you have to take the I and the N away from the title. Pixar has made a credible <laughs> follow-up. It doesn't take advantage of what I thought was really incredible about that first film. Namely, the whole themes of exceptionalism. What do you do? Do you suppress who you are to be a part of the greater good and society? Very interesting, fertile stuff that, yes, other superhero movies have now explored in an adult way. They had a lot to live up to here, and they did the minimum. I think they did a great-looking, entertaining, amusing movie that allows you to continue to like this family. I like all of the characters here. I don't like all of the storylines they're given. But I do like Mr. Incredible, Helen, Dash, Violet, and Baby Jack-Jack. 
I do wonder if they make another one if they shouldn't ask them to grow up a little. I do think they should change. I do think there needs to be a new dynamic. Otherwise, I just don't see a point. Because Pixar is, again, at its best when it is presenting something fresh and new. I don't think sequels are their bag. I haven't seen many of them. And I do like the Toy Story sequels. So I don't want to say it's impossible for them to make an Incredibles 3 that's as good as the first one. But I just tend to think having seen all the effort and energy in 14 years go into this one and the best they could offer was this, that maybe they don't have a whole lot more to say about the family unit or superheroes. They do better by creating another Wally, Ratatouille, something else. Be that as it may, we're here to review this sequel. I thought it was fine. I think you'll enjoy it. I just don't think it'll stick with you. And it better not take 14 years to make another one because no one would remember this movie in 14 years. I don't know if we'll be around in 14 years. <laughs> Look into the donors on that one. <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling like I'm part of the club now. People feel about Incredibles 2 the way I do. <laughs> About Incredibles 1. <laughs> yeah, you felt this way about the last movie. It was nothing special. And I think it's consistent. <laughs> I think this one's definitely a green arrow. There's things I like more about this one than the last one, honestly. I hmm. like that the crime fighting that Helen does as Elastigirl is more fun to me than watching Mr. Incredible go and fight the same robot time and time again. I think it's another check mark in the stage of the animation that they don't have to reuse the same bad guy because it takes so long to draw and render new ones that she can do these various missions and her powers are more fun to watch than Mr. Incredibles. If you give me a spinoff, give me an Elastigirl movie after this. I thought she was cool. The animation is heads and tails above the rest. It's the best computer animation I've seen in a long, long time. I don't know that there's better out there. Pixar has always been bleeding edge, no different. But a lot of the same flaws I saw in the last one. In the last one, I'm like, Marvel should sue for taking Fantastic Four characters. Here, I think Michael Keaton should be uh, asking for a role in the next one because they took his Mr. Mom movie here. Everything except for the strip club visit and the poker party appears to be in this movie. And I think Jack-Jack versus the raccoon is my favorite moment of any Incredibles film. So there's definitely stuff I like more. I feel all the sub-superheroes are underdeveloped. I wish I cared more and got to know Void and Reflux and all of them a bit more. To me, it was a very consistent, enjoyable four hours of a marathon, but I'm not ready to go to Incredibles 3 the way some people did Incredibles 2, wearing my Incredible Cosplay t-shirt. But it's a recommend, like the last one. So, ranking them, you're saying no difference? Yeah, flip a coin. Maybe two over one, a hair. Oh, there's no, no doubt one is far superior. One is way, yeah... <laughs> Way above. And most original installments of Pixar movies I've seen, with maybe the exception of Bugs Life, is better than this. Again, the Toy Story sequels are its own thing, but the other stuff that I've seen leads me to believe they're best when they're off exploring new territory. I would agree with that. Well, neither of these is any op, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. I love up Ratatouille. Wally was solid. Again, the strong ones, the ones that endure, are the ones that they haven't exploited with sequels. Yeah, Inside Out, the most recent one I've seen. That's the last one I've seen. I've skipped yeah. a lot of because they've been a lot of sequels. Yeah. yeah. Coco's on Netflix. I might watch that one soon. See, Coco made no impression on me. I didn't even realize Coco was Pixar. And it does feel 
that Pixar is kind of watering themselves down. And it happens with anything with age. Same as Star Wars. When you have a finite number of them, they feel special. They feel unique. When all you had was Toy Story and A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, and even the original Incredibles, their first six films, it really felt like people saw them as something precious. But when you started pumping out Cars 2, Cars 3, The Good Dinosaur. Did anyone see The Good Dinosaur? No, I don't. Yeah, never heard anything about that one. I remember it coming out, but not one people talk about. That is definitely the redheaded stepchild. They don't talk about that one (laughs) at all. It never happened. It might be good. I just, no one ever brings that one up. I think it was a disappointment. My guess is they would have canceled it. There have been a couple that they were making and then they just put in turn about. That one just got a little too far for them to turn it around, but it shouldn't have probably come out of the gate. I just think that they're feeling less special and they are leaning more on sequels. Cars 3 being the epitome to me of seeing people just be like, meh. Well, with John Lasseter now leaving Pixar, he was a big reason why those got made. It was his series. I firmly say we will never see another Cars movie. And I do feel like, yeah, they're at a crossroads now where they can go in new directions. And there is reason to be concerned, as you pointed out, Disney's sequelitis. But there is also encouragement because, yes, Inside Out is just as good as their early films. And they are still capable of making new, good, original ideas. And yet their only announced upcoming one is Toy Story 4. That's supposed to come out next year. Right. Yeah, we might actually return to Pixar with a Toy Story retrospective. I know that's been long requested. Fourth theatrical film seems to be a reason to do it. Yeah, let us know. I mean, come to the forums or Facebook and let us know if we're wrong. Incredibles 2 is better than the first one. Or if you want us to cover more of this kind of stuff. Because we only did this one to support the book and because we are kind of superhero focused here on this podcast. But there are a lot of other movies I'd be happy to talk about in the Pixar canon. Let us know which ones are your favorite. And join us as we continue on. We have Friday, our donation series is kicking off the third installment of the purge franchise election year yeah it has been kind of a interesting split decision on the first two purge films i remember really liking that third one the only one i saw in theaters is it going to be a good lead-in it is the end of the series because the fourth movie we're doing the first purge is going to be a prequel so does it end on a high note you can listen this friday to find out and speaking of low notes Next Tuesday, oh dear God. What video game are you doing? (laughs) Ding, ding, enter the ring with you. Oh no, Yui Bull. Uva Bull. Uva Bull. Uva Bull is not some strange Scandinavian skin disease. It is a highly prolific director of video game movies. And this was the, chronologically speaking, the earliest game he tackled. Not the first time he went to the video game well, but the earliest game he's tackled, Alone in the Dark. It was a 1992 supernatural, uh, you're a private investigator in a house full of Cthulhu monsters. It had a successful run in the 90s, and then it became his tax write-off in 2005. We are going to talk about it, Kristen Slater, Tara Reid, and why my life has fallen to this depravity. (laughs) (laughs) next Tuesday. And I just want to point out, 
People keep saying, Arnie, what have you done to Stuart? You're gonna make Stuart leave. The video game series isn't my idea. I looked at the schedule. Stuart had populated it with Mario and on. This you did to yourself. Oh, you wanted to do the Igmar Bergman retrospective? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I should have programmed that. Just put that in the schedule for okay, next year. Okay, there it was. It was my mistake. It was Igmar or it was Uvable. I, I wasn't sure which way to go, but I just decided more people would love to hear me scream about a car and whatever else this garbage movie is going to try and foist upon me. Blood Rain and yes. <laughs> House of the Dead. Yeah, he alone has made some of the worst movies of all time. But I got to say, the other ones in this retrospective have not proven to be delights. <laughs> Starting at Super Mario Brothers and going down the pipe, it's been rough. <laughs> So that is going to be on our main feed the next couple of weeks. But fear not if Alone in the Dark isn't exactly your jam. And it appeared to be nobody's jam as it bombed so terribly. That's why I got a sequel. Again, tax write-off. We do discuss all of Yes. There's a reason why money-losing movies get sequels. But we're going to theaters next week for our donors for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. That review will be out a week from Friday. And that's going, if you donated in 2015 for Jurassic World or that retrospective, you're going to get Fallen Kingdom, you're grandfathered in, or you can donate now at the Jurassic level to our donation drive to get all the Jaws reviews, Deep Blue Sea, Deep Blue Sea 2, all the Jurassic Park, all the Purge, and all the Pacino you can stomach. Yeah, I mean, and that's been out, I know I was abroad, and that movie has been out for several weeks now. It is opening this Friday here in America, so we have a chance to watch it and cover it. I'm a little excited because controversial opinion. I think Jurassic World is the best of the franchise. I do think that, yeah, it, this could potentially be even better. Yeah, I rewatched Jurassic World last week and prep. Good movie. And then the week after that, we go to theaters. Actually, just a couple days after that, we go to theaters on the 3rd of July. While you are having your weenie roasts and watching your fireworks, the three of us are getting together on the 4th of July to record the first purge. It's going to be the longest recording ever because there'll be firecrackers going on and Arnie will keep <laughs> making me repeat what I said eternally. And I'm like, all right, how long does it take to fire a firework? I got 10 seconds here for the next Black Cats. And then we'll be in theaters the week after that for Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yeah, the follow-up to Infinity War. How does it all turn out? <laughs> yep, that is a movie. We are covering it. I can't say I'm that excited. But uh, again, I'm always happy to be wrong. I just want to reassert that when I'm wrong, I'll call myself out on it. Ant-Man, I couldn't begin to care. The sequel, I care even less. But if it's good, and I hope it is... I will be happy to be wrong about my ambivalence. And the week after that, it's still yet another new release. It didn't come from theaters. It came from the desert. Yes, it's a video game that you've never heard of, made into a movie you've never heard of, that's been out for a year in Finland, and has finally been dumped VOD. We figured if you loved ants, the best time to position it was after Ant-Man and the Wasp, because it is a take on those old 50s ant movies, where giant radiated bugs are coming out of the desert and presumably eating people or something. I never played the game. I don't know anything about it. But uh, yes, that's our lineup for the next couple weeks. And whether you can donate or not, I do hope you can join us. We got a lot of content we want to share. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your donations. Thank you for pre-ordering the book. And thank you for your patience if you're a Kickstarter backer. 
nearly there. Oh, yes. So close. We're not wearing any capes, so we hope we don't get sucked back into a jet turbine on yeah, this. Yeah, knock on whatever. Something else could happen, but I think, I think it's coming real soon. Between the artist getting in a car accident, a death in my family, everything has It happened. really has been every place, except Wasp. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's when we get to Ant-Man. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> so we'll be back Friday with the Purge election year. Till then, it was ice of you to drop by. No matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. I mean, sometimes I just want it to stay saved, you know, for a little bit. Thank you for listening to this Incredibles episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. That's the way to do it. That's old school. Yeah? <laughs> no school like the old school. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another movie review. Yes, I'm sure your gratitude is quite inexpressible. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archive, you can find reviews of other films, such as all the James Bond films, X-Men, The Fantastic Four, Blade, Punisher, Batman, Superman, The Avengers, and hundreds more. I love superheroes! While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I'll be there ASAP. Where you going ASAP? You better be back ASAP! You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post written movie reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Oh, man! I'm still geeking out about it! Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of NowPlayingPodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. Me too, kid. If you enjoy Now Playing, please head to iTunes and leave us a five-star listing. It's the best way to help spread the word about the podcast. Thank you so much, young man. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book. Underrated movies we recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. It defines who I am. We're not saying you have... What? Someone on TV said... Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You good then? You got everything under control, right? Now Playing is edited by Arnie. When was the last time you slept? Who keeps track of that? Now Playing credits read by Brock. You sly dog! You got me monologuing! I can't believe it! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Well, I think you need to be more... Flexible. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Secrets are no longer in control. 
Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the express written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Yes, words are useless. Come, 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 come. Too much of it, darling. Too much. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2018, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Go! Confront the problem! Fight! Win! And call me when you get back, darling. I enjoy our visits. Starring Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunter, Sarah Vowell, Hulk Mi- Hulk. I'm calling this little doughboy out as a Stay Puff, or not a Stay Puff, <laughs> as a. Does anyone even know what a screensaver is anymore? Is this a really <laughs> dated reference for oldies like us? Oh my god, it didn't occur to me people wouldn't know what a screensaver is. <laughs> When's the last time you saw a flying toaster? I still have them on my laptop. (laughs) Does figure out how to get Jar Jar back from alternative dimensions with cookies and he gets better. You mean? You called him Jar Jar. Oh god, I I did that in my notes too. And he did find ways to get Jack Jack.